0: Hey, hey, welcome once again, another edition of the Disability Law Show. John Schools here. As always, Tamara Agopian is the go-to person for any needs, questions, calls, emails, etc. You can reach out to Tamar and her outstanding team anytime. 855 821 5900 We will need the number to go to. Email is help at disabilityrights.ca. And for any other questions, it's a it's a it's a forum for you to use, which is anonymous and it's uh, searchable as well. The database, that's how the algorithm works called My Disability questions.com you can check that out anytime you like we got lots of questions and emails coming through already on the show uh, for today tomorrow but we always start off with uh, something that's came across your desk a week that was i guess we call it and uh, what do you got going on
1: all business this week john all (laughs) business uh putting my head down getting through some work And, you know, arm wrestling with a couple of insurers on a topic I wanted to start off talking about on the show and arm Mm -hmm. wrestling, you know, I'm, I'm putting it mildly, but, you know, I'm a force sometimes to be reckoned with John. And so beware insurers. And the topic is this. It's the question around how much disclosure is required in the midst of a disability claim. And what I mean by that is how much information is the disability insurer actually entitled to? Uh, when you are advancing a disability claim, either with your claims adjuster or, you know, with my help or my team's help through the context of a legal claim. In a legal claim, there's actually some pretty strict rules and law around what we call the scope of discovery or scope of relevance. And that scope can vary from subject matter to subject matter. But Generally speaking, the main takeaway in disability litigation is that certainly your medical information will be within that scope, right? I think where it becomes more challenging is the period of time in which that relevance exists. So let's say you asserted a disability claim four years ago. In the two-year period you were paid, you know, medical information was supplied to your claims adjuster. And then as inevitably will happen, the adjuster has denied your claim further past that change of definition, uh, typically at that two-year mark. And then you try uh, an appeal, you try and do that maybe for a number of months, uh, you know, perhaps you listen to one of our shows or see our TV show and you think, you know what, I'm going to call, you know, Sam Firu to mark in and I'm going to talk to them about commencing a legal claim. And we do that. And then now we're into year four. So, if we're into year four now, does the insurance company get access to all of that medical information for the past four years? I would say yes. But do they get information for the past 10 years? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's where I take some pause, right? So, I don't want our listeners to hear me say that I don't advocate open at dialogue with your disability insurer. I think that a lot of the times, the more information you provide them, Medical, most certainly, day-to-day activities, most certainly, anything that comments on your level of function or the impacts, frankly, of your day-to-day functioning, I think is actually really, really helpful. And if that's echoed in your medical information, even better. But sometimes adjusters and insurance companies like to punch above their weight. I say sometimes loosely, John, they are often trying to do and get access to things that they are absolutely not entitled to. And where I take pause, I think, is financial information. We get this question a lot, you know, tomorrow I'm going to need to access RRSPs uh, Mm -hmm. to survive because my disability benefit is really only two thirds of what I was making and it's not going to get higher over the next four years while I'm on claim, you know, I need to access other financial resources do i need to tell my insurance company that i'm doing this and my answer invariably is typically no with the caveat that you really do want to see what your disability policy says about disclosure of this kind of information but it's not going to say hey we think you need to provide us with this information and if you don't provide it we're going to deny your claim it's dressed up differently john the policies will talk about things like appropriate treatment so we will release the disability benefit if you're getting appropriate treatment. Well, how do you demonstrate that you're getting appropriate treatment? You have to supply medical information, right? So those things get connected. But think about the financial part of things. That's in a totally different section of the disability policy, I can tell you. And it's in that section that says, we'll pay you X, but if you get access to other sources of income, we get to deduct those sources of income from what it is that we're paying you for LTD. And that's really where insurance companies will hang their hat. In terms of trying to get expansive disclosure on your income status, other sources of income, what are you getting? Look, if you are getting other disability benefits, that's definitely fair game. CPP disability being the one that's most important. EI sickness also comes to mind. Super important. Those, yes, that will be in the yes category. Where it starts to get a little trickier though is if you've got passive income. Let's say you've got a rental property or like an RSP, or other ways that you are trying to generate income where you're not actually working. I think that's areas where it gets a little trickier for the insurance company to say, we must know. And if the fact that you're not telling us will compromise your disability claim within litigation or without, either way, we are entitled to this info. And so I, I really wanted to start off our show saying, look, guys, it, it doesn't Just because you're running a disability claim, whether with our help or otherwise, doesn't mean it's going to be a dissection of everything that's happening in your life. And it is my job, I think, John, to protect my clients from insurance companies trying to do what I said earlier, which is punch above their weight, get more information than they are entitled to for purposes that I think are not really true to evaluating whether someone is totally disabled. What they're trying to do is either seek credits that they're not entitled to because perhaps someone is, you know, getting sources of income that they're allowed to, by the way, in order to survive with their disability benefit. or. They're trying to color the record, so to speak, perhaps trying to establish that because there are these passive elements of income or these other this other information that they're trying to get access to, that it then means that a person is not totally disabled or perhaps cannot be trusted. We talk about this too a lot, this idea yep. of cynicism that disability insurers come at from. And so I, I think the probing that some adjusters do, and frankly, some insurers do with their the help of their lawyers, even within the legal claim context, is not necessarily appropriate. You know, when I was thinking about this topic, John, it, it came to mind an example, and I, I'm going to give you an extreme example. Uh, I helped a client resolve a claim a couple of years back. Everything is confidential, of course. So I'm going to talk about it in generalities. But the issue the insurer had during the adjudication of her claim, so they're paying the benefits. They agree she's totally disabled. She had lots of different health issues. But she was traveling down south to the States because she had a family member there to provide support to one another. The family member needed support and my client needed support from this family member. So she was going down to the States periodically, um, totally kosher, not against the policy provision at all whatsoever, mm-hmm. but the insurer was suspicious of her activities. They didn't trust or believe that it was this was something that she was doing by way of simply support. So during the adjudication, the adjuster had the nerve to ask the, my client to provide her passport. Okay. The passport, all the pages of the passport so that they can line up that she was being quote unquote truthful about the travel that she was doing and the time that she was doing in the periods of time. To me, that is simply a question of credibility and one that that necessarily doesn't exist there. She was being open and honest with the disability Mm -hmm. insurer about what she was doing and why she was traveling. So why that extra need for documentation to check off that box for the adjuster to build that trust or not undermine the credibility of a claimant. Again, I think that the scope of this disclosure sometimes is well beyond what the disability insurer is entitled to. And if anyone is listening and thinking, hey, wait a minute, maybe my adjuster is asking stuff that I shouldn't need to provide. I'm not too sure. Number one, try and get a copy of your disability policy, perhaps probe the adjuster to ask them, like, what what's the basis of this or what are you going to use this information for? And number two, don't hesitate to contact us. I'm happy to have conversations with anyone about any aspect of their disability claim. And this is one that's a little bit nuanced. So it can be a case-by-case situation and it can be tied to your policy. So I can very quickly look at the policy, take a quick read, see what it is that the insurance adjuster or uh, adjudicator is looking for, and then give you some context as to whether or not that's fair or reasonable. And if it's going to be okay not to disclose it or resist disclosure. But the fallback position always at least from a medical perspective more is better so when you're wondering look um, i've got a broken knee but i'm seeing my gynecologist let's say again an extreme example john yeah it's not relevant the gynecological stuff is not relevant but you know what what's the harm in providing that information to the adjuster if they really want to see it fine put it over to them or provide an authorization for them to get this information i don't think it's going to set you back from a disability perspective, if you provide more medical. It's the other stuff that kind of concerns me in this context.
0: Again, always reach out to tomorrow and her team. Like you said, make that phone call, one 821 Let's get to our uh, first question from MyDisabilityQuestions.com. We'll get a couple minutes of this done anyway. Always return to it, but says uh, Tamara was, a, uh, was approved, rather, for ongoing LTD benefits payments under the Any occupation Requirement Less than a year later, they're sending me for a functional capabilities or capacities examination. Prior to my disability, I was a program manager with a financial institution and spent 30 years in the banking industry. The insurance company has now suggested I become a landscaper, which is why they're sending me for the FCE. I'm a 51-year-old woman and quite certain my body could not start a physical labor labor career at this time. Also, they already approved uh, as disability for my occupation. I'm very confused and concerned. No kidding.
1: Yeah. yeah, I'm not surprised, frankly. It's unfortunate that, you know, uh, this woman finds herself in this situation where she's gone over that hurdle, right? That big hurdle around getting benefits approved past that two-year mark, John. Yeah. Because what the insurer is looking at for the any occupation phase of the policy is if this individual, with the education and the training and the experience that she has, and with the ongoing health restrictions could be able to do an alternative job, an alternative occupation that's suited for her, that also will allow her to earn an income that's quote unquote commensurate or an earnings level that's effectively what you're getting for your LTD. So we know that's two thirds typically for most disability policies, sometimes even less. And the insurer is going to use that benchmark to assess whether or not this individual can actually go and do, I think she said, the landscaping job. so why is it that they're putting her through this and the bottom line quick answer is is because your disability benefits are technically a month-to-month policy every month you have to demonstrate and justify in essence that you are totally disabled and continue to be entitled to that ltd benefit so look let's pick this up after our next break john
0: You bet. We'll do that. In the meantime, again, here's the number and email to reach out to Tamar. Do not hesitate at any point. That is 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue. This is, of course, the Disability Law Show. Hang on. All right. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. Great to have you on the show joining us. You can always reach out to Tamar and her team standing by ready to answer questions. Just have that conversation, right? Maybe one more of a private matter discussed. 1-855-821-5900. Help at disability disabilityrights.ca, okay, let's get back to this. It was uh, somebody who reached out uh, to Tamara on mydisabilityquestions.com. They were like, uh, you know, a program manager with a financial institution saying, hey, now you can be a landscaper at 51 years old. What do you say about that? It's yeah. crazy.
1: It is, it is. It's sort of a bonkers assessment when you look at it at face value, <laughs> right, John? And look, I, I don't have a good sense of what this individual's um, health issues are, but I got to think that if she was precluded from doing a, what I would deem to be a sedentary job, right? In a financial institution, she's probably, uh, you know, in an office setting as a program manager. Uh, If she's limited from that type of work, I'm sort of scratching my head how she's going to have the functional abilities to do a landscaper position. But I think this is probably why the disability insurer is sending her for this assessment, she describes to us that it's a functional capacities examination. So what does that mean? It is typically a physical assessment to determine whether or not she has the physical ability to do the requirements of a physical job. And so whether or not this is relevant to her is important because, John, what if she has a mental health disability? Right? Right. If it's a mental health disability... Then, a, then an FCE isn't really going to help or provide any insight as to whether or not she's capable of doing an alternative occupation. So, look, I mean, I think that the unfortunate side of this is that she probably does need to attend. Most policies will say, look, if we want you assessed, you have to submit to the assessment. So I, I think there's not a lot of ways to avoid the assessment itself. But I do think it's important for her to understand, look, there are ways to protect yourself and be ready for an assessment like this. Number one would be to ensure that your own medical team, family doctor, other practitioners, depending on what type of disability claim you have, let them know that, you know, the insurance company is putting me through this in a month. There's likely going to be a report out of it. I may have to share that report with with you folks, with you service providers, and perhaps you provide a response, whatever the case might be. But it's important for her own team to know, especially if you've got a physical disability and are being submitted through a physical examination. Because if the examination is so extreme that you may actually be uh, worse off as a result of the examination, you want that actually well-documented, John. I mean, look, think of a situation where she is put through... Uh, you know, four hours of testing, and this is the most physical she's been in a number of years. She will probably be pushed during that physical assessment. Perhaps she's able to achieve certain milestones during that assessment, but then what happens that afternoon or the next day or the day after that? And if she's laid up in bed and can't move as a result of this specific assessment, you want that clearly well-documented. So there are sort of tools like this that we provide um, individuals advice on. And we call it under the umbrella of IMEs, independent medical examinations, but the functional capacities evaluation is a type of IME, very similar. And if you're looking for some further information, you can actually go to a helpful website. We have www.ltdfaq.ca. And in there is, what's that, John?
0: Yep, exactly.
1: Yeah, ltdfaq.ca. And because it's a plug and play type thing, very easy, you click And if you click down, you will see there's one really helpful section on IMEs and there's a good memo, uh, you know, summarizing basically what I've already described, which is how to prepare yourself for IME, what to expect, how to document. And at the end of the day, if the assessment comes back to say to the insurer, this individual has the capacity to be a landscaper and they actually deny your claim on this basis, then you do want to be ready to have your doctor's support that in fact that's not the case, that you have been accepted for, as totally disabled from any occupation and in fact the functional setting hasn't changed at all when the insurer accepted a year prior that she you know, met the test of disability. It creates actually a good basis for us to get involved and challenge the disability insurer on any underpinnings for actually having done the assessment number one, relying on that assessment number two, and then taking that decision to deny the claim. So if this is the profile that she is going to encounter, then I think let's take it the next step further. She reached out to us on mydisabilityquestions.com Maybe the next step is for her to seek some further information, perhaps have a consultation with one of us, and let's keep a close eye on where this is headed with a disability insurer.
0: And as mentioned uh, by tomorrow moments ago, yeah, short, concise, easy to digest memos available to you in non-legal speak. Right, ltdfaq.ca and the email address help at disabilityrights.ca as well. You know, if if an employee sustains an injury at work tomorrow and then can't work, are they entitled to short-term or long-term disability benefits? Is there a pecking order? Is it the same company, different company? How does it all work?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, So, the short answer is yes, most employers actually have a disability plan. Um, Not all, but most do have something. Um, And larger employers, of course, will have better somethings than others. But I I find, in other words, they'll have a group plan, right, uh, John? And that's usually, those are the types of policies that we talk about on the show is the group disability plan. And they likely will have both a short-term disability component or what some insurers call weekly benefits and a long-term disability component. So you want to start out making that short-term disability benefit application, most certainly, and going through that process because if your disability does persist beyond the short-term disability timeframe, then the long-term disability will kick in. Um, And sometimes you even have to make a further application to the long-term disability insurer. But I think the more important question here is, the injury was sustained at work. So does that make it any different than developing a, a health condition or having something happening outside of the work setting? I think the fact that it occurs at work sometimes can complicate the situation because it can be a workers' compensation issue or work safe. So some employers are part of these um, workers' benefits type programs they are different than short-term and long-term disability benefits and they are actually self-governing so in other words it's a tribunal they have their own legislation you have to make your own application process with workers compensation you need an incident report you have to let your employer know i mean we we don't really get into that work where we work john in ontario and alberta and bc and so on however it's important as it relates to other access to other benefits. In the short-term phase, it can be an either-or. Some employers I've seen have workers' compensation benefits access but may not have short-term. Others have both. And there can be a a connection between the two in the sense that the medical information that you're going to submit, either to the disability insurer or to, for workers' compensation, will be the same inevitably because the injury was sustained at work. But if you are approved for an income benefit from the workers' compensation realm, then the disability insurers typically will look for a credit or a deduction from the income amount you're getting from workers' compensation. But it's important that it's apples to apples, John. It's not just workers' compensation giving you rehab, support, and other things. You actually have to be approved for an income amount month over month. Usually, I think it's about 70 to 80% of what someone is making. And I think what's interesting is that it can actually exceed some LTD and STD benefit plans. So if that's the case, you may not get long-term from a dollars-per-dollar perspective, but you may still be entitled to it. So what I want people to understand is that if you've been injured at work, it's not just one thing. You want to pursue access all the different sources of income that you might be able to get. Because if you get resistance from one, you may still be entitled to the other or all. And you don't want to leave any money on the table. This is why you pay premiums. This is why all of these policies and sources of income exist. Because if you're in the unfortunate situation that you've been injured at work, you want to make sure that you've got some financial support while you're recovering, while you're getting better, and ideally getting back to work within the period of time of recovery. Uh, And so I think that we get this question a lot because people are not sure, right? Where do I go? And so... The hope is that your employer has a decent HR rep who can direct you to where you make the applications, where you can find the forms. But if you're not sure, your benefit booklet should probably have information like this about what you have coverage for. And you should absolutely make sure that you're not missing the time frames for advancing these types of claims. And that's really the toughest part, John, for most people. I find that once they've sustained an injury, they're so focused on trying to deal with their recovery and immediate issues around the injury that this is all secondary And, and fair enough. But some disability insurers have very tight timeframes to initiate claims, and they can be rather harsh about the timeframes. So if there's no reasonable explanation for the delay of having submitted your claim, They're pretty darn quick to say, hey, you're out of time, and we're not even going to consider whether you're entitled to benefits because you didn't submit your forms in time. The courts have disagreed with insurers on this issue, so there are avenues for relief. It's called relief from forfeiture, but I'd much prefer to see people do things at the right time frames and not allow the disability insurer a technical reason to deny an otherwise valid claim. So the conclusion is, yes, you could be entitled to short-term and long-term. You could also be entitled to workers' compensation benefits. You should apply for all of them. And if you get resistance from any of those avenues, don't hesitate to contact us. There's a a great paralegal we refer people to for workers' compensation, and we can, of course, assist with the short-term and long-term
0: claims. You know, my biggest criticism with you, tomorrow is your answers aren't in-depth enough. You don't provide enough information (laughs) on this show.
1: (laughs) Like honestly. Thanks, <laughs>
0: like got you covered big time. Again, reaching out to tomorrow, guys is really simple. 855 uh fifty nine hundred email we always go to is help at disabilityrights.ca. Emily is next up. She says, Hey, tomorrow my L T D benefits were denied by the insurance company because my employer did not put in the correct dates and it was submitted after the deadline. I was denied to do a contractual reasons. Is there any recourse with this for me?
1: Look at that. Emily, your email came right at the right moment. That's exactly what I was talking about. And yes, you do absolutely have a recourse, Emily. So I think it's important in Emily's situation that it be clearly articulated by herself and ideally her employer as to why the deadline was missed, right? The correct dates were not put in. It's again, a technical reason and most disability insurers will need to consider whether that technical reason is enough to forgive the lateness, quote unquote, of the disability application. What they may also do is actually seek further guidance from Emily's employer on whether or not they can waive that requirement, the, the time limit requirement. And I've seen some employers be very cooperative and others be more resistant. And you may not know, Emily, you might not know if your employer is on board and they're gonna be, you know, pushing on the disability insurer to make sure that your claim is actually adjudicated or not. And what I'm concerned about here is that it sounds like there was an explanation provided. And in fact, the insurer just chose to simply deny the claim on a technical basis. If that's the case, and there's a reasonable explanation, and that explanation is they're not going to be moved upon that. If there's no other recourse, then I do think it is an absolutely good basis to challenge the disability insurer on these technical declines. It's not ideal, I get it, Um, and you don't necessarily want to go down the path of a legal claim, but if you've got entitlements and the disability insurer has refused to look at your disability claim itself and adjudicate on that basis due to a technicality, the courts have said they're not on the right side of the law on this. There is recourse. As I said before, it's a concept called relief from forfeiture. And what the courts will look at is the reasonableness as to why it was late, how long it was late, and if that lateness hasn't prejudiced the disability insurer from actually looking at the medical information that you've provided to them, then they're not in a good position to simply rely on the lateness to not look at your claim. They can't just bury their heads in the sand, uh, and the courts have been, been very clear about that. So, uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, yes, there's absolutely recourse, uh, but it could be a tougher road in terms of having to, you know, pursue your legal rights Uh, But if, you know, as a starting point, the employer hasn't provided that explanation to the disability insurer, Emily, I would start there.
0: And with that we will take one short break and get back into uh, to lots more. Thank you Emily for reaching out. You can always follow up with that phone call encouraged to do so, right? 1855-821-5900 the email for everybody else here. Uh, your email might show up in a show too right later on. If uh, if you want to help at disabilityrights.ca then the place to answer questions, please ask questions uh, freely and anonymously with a searchable database meaning your questions someone uh, some questions similar rather could have been asked previously. Just read the answer. Say you some time. That website is my disabilityquestions.com. With that, we'll take a short break. Get lots uh, lots more on the way here on the Disability Law Show. Hang on. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Disability Law Show again this week. John Scholes here and with me, lawyer, of course, Tamara Gopian Sanfiru, Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Never hesitate to just pick up a phone and have that uh, that chat with Tamara, a member of her crew. Always ready to talk to you about your matter because it can be very confusing and intimidating dealing with uh, long-term disability insurers for sure. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred help at disabilityrights.ca Let's talk about health uh, health issues tomorrow that are uh, progressive those that get worse and worse over time they qualify for disability benefits. Does that whole metric change at all?
1: well it's, it's an interesting question because you can think about you know what is a progressive health issue I mean mental health I think falls into that category for sure others that come to mind are, you know, things like Parkinson's disease or multiple sclerosis, Um, even some, you know, cancer treatments, you know, you may be diagnosed, but then it doesn't really impact you immediately. It just then, you know, gets worse over time, perhaps after certain interventions like radiation and chemotherapy and that. And so what does that do with your disability claim? And so let's go back to the main principles of disability, which is what the disability insurer is looking for is a date or a point in time where you went from being able to work to not being able to work and that is called the date of disability and they're always looking for that starting point because that is the starting point that triggers whether or not their policy actually has to respond to pay ltd benefits so with i mean i can talk about it in the context of short term as well john but basically both short term and long term have a qualifying period there's a hold period in essence before LTD benefits start to get paid or STD benefits start to get paid. And that hold period, throughout that period of time, you have to demonstrate that you're totally disabled and not able to work as a result of your health issues. And that point in time where the benefits are going to are gonna start to kick in is really tied to the start of your disability claim, and it's difficult to pin that down because of progressive health issues in the sense that if things are getting worse over time, then you may not have gone from one day to the next that you were not able to work. It could have just been a culmination over a period of time. And at some point, a decision had to be made with your doctor about whether or not to continue working. And where it becomes a little bit trickier with disability insurers is that if you were in a partial work capacity or you were being accommodated for a period of time, perhaps you weren't even working at all, that can have technical impacts on how a disability insurer will treat a progressive disability claim. Think for example, you know, there's a requirement in the policies that say, you know, in order for you to be eligible for disability benefits, or any coverages really, you have to be quote unquote, actively at work. There's an actively at work requirement that says you've got to work at least 20 hours a week or 30 hours a week for this company in order for you to be fully eligible for all the benefits that we have available under this plan. And so if you've got a progressive health issue and things are getting worse over time, you might be pulling back on your capacity to work in the months leading up to your disability claim. And then you initiate your disability claim and the disability insurer is saying, well, you're out of time or your disability was actually five months ago or you didn't meet the actively at work requirement. And so I have seen a lot of resistance by disability insurers on these odd technicalities in contexts where the claims are more progressive. So not an injury, not an immediate thing. You know, you didn't go one day to the next to not being able to work. The thing is, it's most important, though, John, for our listeners, is that these are absolutely valid disability claims. Just because the insurer is saying no or is providing some kind of resistance on a technical basis doesn't mean they're right about that. And I think people sometimes accept that for face value to say, okay, well, I guess I should have applied when I first got the diagnosis or I guess I should have kept working until things got worse. Or, you know, not valid, not valid. There's actually a really good case out of British Columbia called Tanius and Empire Life that specifically addresses the progressiveness of these conditions. It's a court of appeal decision out of BC. So it has some uh, persuasive value in the other provinces that we operate in. And what's important, there's a bunch of takeaways from that case, but one of the main takeaways was that the individual had some periods where she was working and yet was still claiming disability ultimately within a certain point in time. And the disability insurer resisted her claim all the way through to trial, would you imagine? And yes, they got their wrist slapped and they were absolutely wrong. But one of the takeaways from that decision that I think is super helpful is that if you've got a progressive health issue, It doesn't mean that you're necessarily out of time in fact even when you've got partial work capacity or periods of time where you're working you can still be qualified as totally disabled now this is a very technical argument john so i don't expect our listeners to necessarily understand but Mm -hmm. if they have health issues that have been bothering them for a period of time it doesn't mean that they're not entitled to disability benefits it all comes back to having a reasonable discussion with your medical team and saying, look, does it make sense? Is this sustainable? Am I better off not continuing to put myself in a work environment? Um, and therefore, should I be pursuing disability benefits? And if you've got that support from your own doctor, then by all means, you should absolutely apply. And if you get any resistance, you know where to get us.
0: It's interesting too. I mean, is this, is this something that uh, you mentioned, you'll still have disability benefits and have some sort of capacity to work. Are you gonna get a lot of resistance? I mean, is it, this is something you wouldn't want to go out alone, correct?
1: yeah that's exactly right. And so you know wow. it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think sometimes it can be uh, a luck of the draw in terms of the type of adjuster you might get. If it's one that's a bit more experienced, who has seen these types of claims before, can understand the nuances, you might get less resistance and a little bit more cooperation, particularly if it's a condition that, you know, is very well known. Like I think like Park, again, I go back to Parkinson's only because it's so visible. You really can see, Um, the tremors and other uh, physical features for an individual who has Parkinson's and having that documented I think is super helpful and can be a little bit easier in terms of getting those disability benefits approved but if it's a progressive mental health condition John you know we've talked about this on the show before as well is that some adjusters just don't get it that you're trying your best but it got to a point where you couldn't continue working and unfortunately, what I see is disability insurers using that capacity to work almost against people who have otherwise valid disability claims. So well, you are able to work all this time with these conditions, why is it that you cannot continue? So if there is clear medical information as to what has changed, perhaps worsened, perhaps something that, you know, really it got to a point where you shouldn't have continued and you have that support from your doctor, then you really should not be getting that resistance from the disability insurer. Your benefits should be approved. And if they're not, then I do think there is a good basis, both in law and factually, by the way, to pursue the disability insurer.
0: Sean, thanks for the email. We'll get to you in just a moment. We got to take one more small break before we dive back into those emails and questions. In the meantime, this number you keep with you all the time, not just during the hour of the show. We give it to you to use going forward 1 855 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. As well, this is the Disability Law Show. Hang on, more coming up. All right, welcome back. A few minutes to go, Disability Law Show. Doesn't mean you can't reach out afterwards, right? To tomorrow and her team, they're always standing by to talk to you, give you some clarity. This can be a tough terrain to navigate dealing with that disability uh, insurer, so you want to get some proper information, advice, and guidance for sure. Simple phone call, 1-855-821-5900. Do not be bashful and hesitate to call. It is a, uh, It could be a lengthy or a short private conversation between you and Tamar's team, so have no fear in that regard. Help at disabilityrights.ca, that's the email address we always use. Moving on down to Sean, as promised, Tamar says, hey guys, my wife has been on disability since uh, the year 2000 in which a settlement was initiated through lawyers. Since the time of her disability, the amount has never changed. Is she entitled to a cost of living adjustment for all these years? When you think about that?
1: Hmm. Yeah, good question, Sean. Uh, the short answer is probably not. Uh, yeah. Probably not. But it's interesting to me that you know, look, it was effective. Obviously, they negotiated something with the lawyers and benefits have continued, which is fantastic. Uh, This is what I always want to hear for individuals who have sought their legal rights. So I think super. Uh, But let's explain what it is that Sean is after. It is the question around whether or not your disability benefit actually changes month over month year over year, even though you may be on claim for the last 20 years, right? 23 years. right. And so some disability policies actually have a section in it that says that you get a cost of living adjustment. Uh, But typically, the base plan that's existing in most policies that I've seen doesn't include a cost of living adjustment. It's like an enhanced option now, John, where you've got to click the enhanced option and maybe pay a couple extra bucks on premiums in order to get a COLA, a cost of living adjustment. If that COLA was made available, uh, then typically will happen in January of every year, your disability benefit will increase by a percent or two, maybe even higher now with our inflation rates. Um, So it actually can be a very helpful component. So if you're setting your benefits, if anyone's listening and you're setting your benefits for a new job, or there's an option to enhance your LTD coverage, I do recommend a COLA. Uh, But otherwise, your disability benefits are set to the pre-disability income level. So for Sean's wife, that would have been back in 2000, maybe even before then, for whatever rate of earnings she was making, and it would likely be around two thirds of what she was making at that time. And so absolutely, it can be a tough uh, pill to swallow. That benefit is not going to change for the lifetime of your claim. So I, I take it from what Sean has described, John, that the benefits have continued. Uh, and I would have hoped that good lawyers would have been live to the fact that is there a cost of living adjustment and have negotiated to ensure that that's in there if it hasn't been so far. But having to go back in time, you would be absolutely out of time to do that, unfortunately, Sean. So this is why it's so important. If your benefits are being approved, most disability insurers will send you a letter. They'll tell you what your LTD amount is. And they may or may not comment on either the tax status or whether you get a cost of living adjustment. If you're not sure, if the benefit level is being calculated at less than what you think it should be, That's the time to have that conversation with your adjuster and even possibly your employer to double triple check as to what you are insured for. Let me give you an example. Let's think of a scenario where individuals are earning a base salary plus commissions and there's lots of work settings where people have that kind of compensation. Sometimes your disability benefits though are only on your base salary and you wouldn't know that unless you made that inquiry with your employer. Or perhaps you're, you don't know that at all until you make a disability claim, right? And so I don't want people to be left in the lurch thinking the majority of their salary is coming from commissions, but their LTD benefit is not reflecting that amount. That's a conversation to ensure with your employer in the context of making a disability claim and making sure that you have sufficient coverage for short term and long term. In case you are in a scenario like Sean's wife, where you might have to be on claim for the next 20, 25 years, you want to make sure that those benefits are paid at the right amount on the right basis. Because the longer it goes in time where you've agreed to it, the tougher it is down the road for a lawyer like me to challenge the insurer to say, hey, you miscalculated this. You should have you underpaid. You should have paid X, what have you. Because don't forget, in Ontario, Alberta, BC, there's a two-year window in which to start a legal claim against your insurer after they've uh, compromised your rights in some way. Typically, that would arise when you get a denial letter. But sometimes it could be as simple as they miscalculated your benefit and you then have a right of action to pursue that with disability insurer by a legal claim. So you want to make sure you understand your rights You understand what your policy is covering you for and how your LTD benefit is being calculated so you're not left in the dark down the road if something were to happen with your claim.
0: Let me get this last question to you tomorrow. Last uh, two minutes of the yeah. show, and it's uh, this is such a Canadian question. If someone is on a wait list to see a certain specialist, never happens up here, or to get specific treatment, can this impact the LTD claim?
1: Yeah, it's it's getting worse, isn't it, John? And it's it's yeah. sad to me that it's getting worse. But we really are in a state uh, uh, in most of the provinces in this country where the wait lists are just way too long for people to access treatment. And the unfortunate part of all this is that it can compound uh, problems. So now you're waiting to get get to see a doctor or a specialist. And at the same time, the disability insurers, we're tired of waiting. You don't meet the test of disability or you're not getting appropriate treatment. It's harsh, but I have seen that happen. And if you're in that situation, please don't hesitate to talk to us. Because that is not a proper basis for disability insurers deny benefits when you're on a wait list to try and see a specialist and get on top of your health to recover and, and get better.
0: And that is pretty much it for another week. We appreciate all your correspondence through email. You can always make that phone call to follow up and maybe your email will uh, appear on a future show. How do you send that along? Help at disabilityrights.ca, right? Phone number one 855 And that website, we always encourage you to go to and ask your questions anonymously. By the way, it's free. Obviously, my mydisabilityquestions.com. And then finally, short, concise, easy to read memos all about the topics of LTD, a variety of them. You can use LTDFA. Q.ca and we'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.